Hello, and welcome to another edition of the On-Call Consults in Less Than 10 Minutes series on ENT in a Nutshell, a compliment to Head Mirror's online survival guide. I'm your host, Jake Johnson, and today we are joined by Dr. Garrett Choby, a board-certified rhinologist and skull-based surgeon. In this episode, we will cover the complications of sinusitis. Let's jump right in. Sinusitis can refer to both acute bacterial rhinosinusitis as well as a bacterial flare in the setting of chronic rhinosinusitis. Complications of sinusitis are relatively rare due to the widespread availability of antibiotics, but are important to understand given the ophthalmologic and neurologic consequences. Complications of sinusitis occur more frequently in children and adolescents as well as immunocompromised patients. Sinusitis complications can generally be broken down into the three anatomic areas they affect, bone, orbit, and the intracranial space. The proximity of the ethmoid cavity and thin nature of the lamina papricia allow for easy extent into the orbit. Diploic veins from the frontal sinus to the intracranial space allow for easy intracranial spread and have the greatest flow during the second and third decades of life. Dr. Choby, could you take us through a differential diagnosis, including can't-miss diagnoses that you consider when seeing a patient with this phenomenon? Sure. And as you mentioned, I think it's ideal to break these down into anatomic regions. So I think of them in the sense of uh, bony, orbital, and then intracranial spread. So in regards to bony disease, a Potts puffy tumor or osteomyelitis with possible abscess of the frontal bone is, is one you can think about. Osteomyelitis and then, of course, an infected mucosal or mucopiocele can occur as well. In regards to orbital complications, these are more common in adolescence and are commonly broken down according to the Chandler's classification. This uh, refers to a spectrum of disease uh, ranging from preceptal cellulitis or Chandler class 1 to post-septal cellulitis or Chandler class 2, and then progressing to a class 3, which is a sub-periosteal abscess. Further extension or class 4 includes an orbital abscess. And then lastly, Chandler class 5 would be a cavernous sinus thrombosis. These are most commonly caused by infections with staph and strep. And then, of course, the cavernous sinus really is the junction from the orbit to the intracranial space, which brings us to that third category of intracranial spread of disease. And this can range from things including epidural abscess or meningitis to subdural abscess, or even in rarer cases, intraparenchymal abscesses. And we discussed this a little bit at the beginning, but what are some risk factors uh, for patients to suffer one of these consequences? Certainly, these occur more commonly in children or adolescents and tend to occur more commonly in boys than girls. This is thought to be uh, potentially due to extension of frontal sinusitis to the intracranial space via those valveless diploic veins. Certainly, in immunocompromised patients, these can occur more commonly or in a patient with a history of CRS with multiply resistant, more aggressive bacteria. So with those factors in mind, how do patients present oftentimes? Oftentimes, the patients have a vague history of sinusitis or nasal congestion. This is especially uh, common in kids, and they may even have some previous treatment for it and things have not improved. When things spread uh, to the bone, to the orbit, or intracranially, they tend to have more symptoms of headache and may have eye pain, edema, or proptosis even. Certainly, when there's orbital spread, we think about things like loss of visual acuity or diplopia. And when there's intracranial spread, we think of things like meningismus, worsen headache, or even in some cases, focal neurological defects. And so as you go down to see this patient or if you're a provider in the ED, what sort of things do you want to ask them? And uh, what are some specific questions you really want to try to tease out from them? I think it's important to discuss things like how long the symptoms have been for and what their previous treatments have been. Uh, of course, if they had a lot of previous treatments, you may worry about things like uh, antibiotic resistant bacteria. You always want to know the state of their immune system and whether any Im immunocompromise is present. 
Uh, I also think it's important to talk about previous uh, complications of sinusitis or other issues such as sinus surgery, orbital surgery, intracranial surgery, or a previous history of uh, maxillofacial trauma. It's of course important to recognize things like visual changes or double vision. And then of course, talking with the, the child or the uh, parent, eliciting things like confusion, change in mental status, or alterations in alertness or orientation. And after, you know, after you've taken that history or, or on your way to take that history, what are some items that you want to gather with you to conduct your examination or, or gather any cultures or things like that? So it's very important to have proper PPE for these kind of consultations, including uh, masks, eye protection, gloves, and potentially a gown. You're going to end up looking in their nose. So things like uh, zero degree endoscope is very helpful. Um, you may want to use things like Afrin or oxymetazoline, as well as a numbing agent like lidocaine. And then, of course, having things for culture is also important in many of these scenarios. So now that you have your key supplies, what are some things that you're looking for when you examine this patient? I think it's very important to perform a very thorough head and neck examination with special attention to a cranial nerve examination, including cranial nerves 3, 4, and 6, as well as gross visual acuity, uh, peripheral vision. A close examination of the periorbital soft tissue is very important. A pupillary exam, as well as a careful exam of the conjunctiva and sclera. A neurologic exam is also important, including asking questions about uh, alertness and orientation and general gross motor strength in all four extremities, especially if you're worried about intracranial extent of disease. And then, of course, a rigid endoscopy is important, looking for things like purulence and middle meatus or sphenomethmotor recess, and you may consider directed culture swabs uh, when appropriate. Now, oftentimes, as the ENT on call or the otolaryngologist in consultation, there may be a CT scan or something like that along those lines already performed. But if you're the first provider to see this patient, what are you considering in terms of diagnostic workup? I think starting with a very quick um, CT sinus without contrast is appropriate in most cases. This will help to tell you the extent of the intranasal and sinus disease and may give you clues to things like orbital involvement or bony infection. If there is dehiscence or breakthrough in bones of the skull base uh, or the posterior tip of the frontal sinus, this can also be shown in this particular uh, scan. And if there's significant intracranial extension, things like a midline shift or epidural abscess may be able to picked up on a CT scan. However, in many cases, an MRI scan is a nice adjunct to this. This can show you things like enhancement along the meninges or a contrast enhancing ring where uh, an abscess is present. It's also helpful to look for uh, things like cavernous sinus involvement, uh, which can be really key in this population. And then lastly, there are certain scenarios when a CTA or an MRA MRV may be necessary. And again, this is especially uh, helpful for worrisome things like a cavernous sinus thrombosis or a dural sinus thrombosis. And so as you establish a diagnosis and determine what anatomic areas and structures are involved with the patient, what are some things that you consider as far as initiating treatment with these in the acute setting? Absolutely. The first thing I'll mention is that it is, of course, very important to treat these in a multidisciplinary fashion. So if there's any worry about orbital involvement, I think um, ophthalmology consultation is very important. And any worry about intracranial extension, of course, neurosurgical opinions are also very important. If this is the case and you think that there's uh, some sort of extension of disease, certainly early initiation of broad-spectrum antibiotics with good CNS penetration is very important. Although infectious disease will typically manage these, a good thought on outset of management would be some combination of ceftriaxone, metronidazole, and vancomycin. This gives excellent broad coverage and all penetrate the CNS system fairly well. As far as the nasal care goes, uh, certainly 
getting a little saline in or some decongestant sprays early on may help to improve uh, drainage naturally. When we think about intraorbital involvement, some of the early Chandler classifications may be observed, things like Chandler classification one and two. However, when a subperiosteal abscess develops, depending on its size and what the patient's exam is, surgical intervention may be warranted. Certainly, if there is a large abscess or further extension from there, surgery would likely be done in a semi-urgent fashion. This typically involves some sort of endoscopic sinus surgery, as well as potentially external approaches by oculoplastic surgery. If there is intracranial extension of disease, again, in most cases, you want to address the sinuses for source control. This can be accomplished via endoscopic sinus surgery. However, this can be challenging due to the acute inflammation and bleeding that can accompany these infections. So in some cases, for instance, if there's a frontal sinus infection res resulting in uh, a subperiosteal abscess behind it and intracranial extension, you may consider a quick trephination in the operating room, which can deliver uh, antibiotics locally and drain the infection without resorting to a full endoscopic sinus surgery. And of course, input from neurosurgery is very important. And postoperative care will depend a lot on the extent of their disease, but typically rinse rinses are utilized postoperatively and you may tailor antibiotic therapy based upon culture results. I think that's a really nice quick summary of going down to see a consult that it deals with the complications of sinusitis. We really appreciate your time today, Dr. Shobi. Thank you for being with us. Thank you very much. <laughs>